In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar had erected a statue 90 feet high of gold, or at least gold-plated, and said to the people, when the band plays, you bow down. Not just bow down, though, bow down and worship. And if you don't, just a little extra motivation to you if you're having, not sure whether you want to do it or not, uh, you will be thrown into, if you don't bow down and worship, you will be thrown into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So the Nebuchadnezzar praise band comes up, starts playing. All the people bow down and worship, except for three Jewish men who are living in Babylon. They are what we call exiles from Jerusalem. They were taken as prisoner of war in Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion. There's primarily three of Jerusalem. So they don't bow. Some of the Babylonian leaders, jealous of these guys because they had been promoted, they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar tells these three Jewish guys, hey, I'm going to give you a second chance. And he warns them, and he says, hey, listen, just remember, no one can stop me, and no one can help you if you don't do what I say. But in verse 16 through 18, we return to those verses again, they decline. This is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, it's interesting in this matter, what, of bowing down and worshiping or that no one can save us. Very interesting to think of those possibilities. If this is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able, our God is sovereign, we serve him, he's sovereign, to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, now, right away, I think as Americans, that kind of rubs some of us the wrong way. That's not the way we are taught to pray or to speak. What do you mean, if not? That's like you're doubting. If not, but if not, let it be known to you, O king. We know it. You don't that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, why would they say if? Why would they say if? Well, let's remember that they are from Jerusalem. And uh, when Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came to attack Jerusalem, when they were there, 605 B.C., God did not deliver unfaithful Jerusalem from Babylon, and they were taken prisoner. So now they're looking at a similar situation, and they're going, we don't know what will happen. I mean, when the, when the Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem, do you think they were praying? Of course they were. It's amazing how emergencies get people to pray, isn't it? <laughs> of course they were. But, but they don't have, they didn't know what was going to happen, yet through that incident, it developed in them something we're going to talk about today, the title of our message, Faith for the Future, part of our series, Living in a New World. This statement of faith that these guys make really have had me thinking about what is the last almost 15 months, and even the year before it where our church went through some very difficult deaths that we had, people going home to be with the Lord. They were, they were having a grand old time while we're sitting here crying. 
And it's made me think a, a lot about myself, about a lot of you. It's made me think about our church. It's made me think about the church in America. Um, the reactions to tragedy, the reactions to hardship, the reactions to the social and political issues has produced or revealed the great faith in some and a lack of faith in others. Some have trusted more and really grown in their faith in this season. Others are really struggling in their faith. Some have left the faith. Current statistics are that we could expect one-third of the people who attend our church to no longer be part of the faith. Not just part of our church, but to no longer be part of the faith. And right now, it's said that one-third of pastors are seriously considering quitting because of the way things went and the way they were treated and, and the uphill battle that they see before them um, in the days to come. Sorry for you, I'm in the two-thirds that's not considering quitting. <laughs> Some of you are like, darn. <laughs> yeah, thanks to both of you who clapped. <laughs> Some are confident in the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan and his plans are best. Others are very fearful of the future that may or may not happen. Now, here's an important concept I want everybody to grasp as before we go any further. This time has planted some things in my soul much more deeply than they were before, despite the fact how obvious they are, yet how subtle they are at the same time. One thing is this, and I know this is going to rub some of you the wrong way. God has not promised grace for all of the situations that are merely in our head. He has not. You know, all of the what-ifs you have, God has not promised you grace for all of the what-ifs. Now, you say, but I'm suffering from anxiety. There's grace for that. But if your head is just spinning with all of the what-ifs, no, no, God hasn't promised us grace for that. God has promised grace. God has promised to sustain us, to hold us up in all the situations that he brings us into, that he allows into our life. You can theologically play around with both of those two statements all you want. I'm, I'm a bottom line guy. I'm like, well, I'm in this situation. I don't know whether he put me here or it happened or I did it or whatever, but you know, he allowed it, whatever. But that's where he's promised grace for. Now, to be honest, in the last 15 months, I have heard a billion conspiracy theories. A billion. Now, if you want to 
mail me more copies. I, I already have it, already read it, bought it on my own, and then got copies of, of Rod Dreher's book on soft totalitarianism. Fine, that's great. I'll give it out to other people. I enjoyed the book very much. So you can, you can do that. For, you know, send, send them to me. But I, but I haven't really seen as much faith as I hoped to. I really was hoping that this would unite the church. I don't mean our church, I mean the church in America instead of the tremendous division that it has brought to the church. Truth be told, most of us are in battles and you know me, I don't like to compare people's battles. Your battles are real to you, I understand that. But we are in battles far less than these three guys. I mean, really, anybody this week get were warned about being thrown into a fiery furnace? Just any of you? Yeah, not, not too many takers on that one. The battle is for us, for our hearts, and for our minds. Yet it's so easy to make excuses. It's so easy to compromise. It's so easy to to blame our culture. Remember, we do need to be involved in the process. Uh, did, did any of you hear about the guy down in Virginia who stood up in the meeting, the gym teacher who stood up in the meeting and said, I can't watch the 60 Minutes thing on, uh, on transitioning. He said, I can't lie to my students. By the way, uh, he goes to Calvary Cornerstone, Pastor Gary Hamrick, who's on our radio station, he goes to his church. So I'm actually gonna see Gary in a couple weeks down at Bridgefest. And, uh, and, so, and so I'm not saying we're not involved in such things, but sometimes we blame our culture and then think that our reason to disengage means it's okay. No, we're, we're, not, we're not called to disengage the culture. We're called to engage the culture in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are things that we're told by our world that we need to make us happy there are things that we're told that we need to do to be true to ourselves. And just, you know, I, I, I like to observe humanity, and I do see so many people in the fiery furnace of frustration right now, both Christian and non-Christian. You know, if we're spiritually sensitive, we may realize that our faith is failing. Let me back that out. Our biblical faith is failing. If we're not spiritually sensitive, we don't even see it. They say, why would you call it biblical faith, Pastor Jim? Because that is faith that trusts in God and seeks to obey his word. And it's the faith, the kind of faith that the Lord loves to see in his people. It's not faith in what we want. That's American faith. It's not faith in what we want. It's doing what God says, being faithful, and trusting him with the results. If you are young, or if you are old, if you get that, if you understand that, 
that you are just faithful and you leave the results up to God, you will probably sleep like a baby. So many of you said to me, Pastor Jim, you look so good during COVID. I lost a little weight and I sleep like a baby. <laughs> I just, you know, at night, I just say, Lord, I can't fix this thing. And well, you got problems. <laughs> and I put all the critics in your hand. I'm just trying to do the best I can. And I know I'm not going to make anybody happy. I just want to make you happy. And, you know, if, if you have a case against me for trying to protect your people, then, then you got a case against me. And please, please rebuke me on it, please. So these men are saying to Nebuchadnezzar, whether God saves us from the fire or not, we know that we're still in God's hands. You see, generally, not, not always, right? It's not the, this is not the same kind of faith that we see in our culture, even among many who call themselves Christians. What does our culture teach us? If you just have enough faith, unbelieving people say that. If you just have enough faith, you can expect good things and you can expect to get what you want. Not really. Not really. People say, if you want, you can do anything you want. Not really. Not really. How many of you ever dreamt of playing professional sports? How many did it happen for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, you can't do whatever you want. You can't. You know, our, anybody remember what our motto is for this year? Our motto is for this year is, with God, all things are possible. That's our motto for this year. We're already, almost already halfway through the year. So now we've got, to, we've got to start. With God, all things are possible. But I think our culture's motto is this. With me, all things I want are possible. <laughs> and that is the fiery furnace of frustration, isn't it? You know, I'm just not happy. Well, the whole world's miserable. Welcome to the club. But Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Now, you're, most of you are Christian people. If you're not, glad you're here, glad you're watching. And when you tell people with God, all things are people, possible, people go, oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Well, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking to his apostles about how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the apostles were very confused because they thought that rich people were blessed by God and they thought that they were going to get a front row seat in heaven. Verse 25, Matthew 19, 25 says this, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? Jesus knew that rich people trusted in riches and like many Americans, who most are rich by world standards, the vast majority are rich by world standards, like most Americans, rich people are driven by selfishness. Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
Now, that's said in various places in the Bible. What's he talking about here? With, with God getting to heaven, with men, sorry, getting to heaven is impossible. They can't do it. You can bring yourself into this world. You're not going to get yourself out of this world. But he says with God, God can get you to heaven. But again, it's said in various other places in the Bible. Let's apply it to our problems. We are being trained by our culture and our lack of theological thought in much of our churches, even Bible-believing churches with our, okay, I'm going to use a name, our austenified pulpits, which we now have in our churches. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Think about it. And people often start to think that the difficulties that are brought into their lives are often brought into their lives because of their inadequate faith. So, you wonder why you're so discouraged. Life is not going the way you want it to go, and you wonder why you're so discouraged. To tell people that they are in the situation that they are in because of a lack of faith is cruel. You are just like those jokers at the foot of the cross, wagging their heads, pointing at Jesus. He saved others, but he can't save himself. That's exactly what we're like if we do that. Now look at these three guys. These three guys say to Nebuchadnezzar, we know that the Lord can save us. We, we, we know this. But we also know that he ha may have other plans. In other words, we know for us to save ourselves from the fire is impossible. But maybe this problem that we are in right now is not a lack of faith. Maybe the situation we are in right now has us right smack in the middle of God's plan for our lives. They're not doubting. They're actually demonstrating true biblical faith, which is faith in God's plan, not their plan. I hate to be the one to break the news to some of us, but, but it's important to remember that God's plan is often not our plan. I believe with all of my heart that tragedy turns into triumph. The cross demonstrates that. It just doesn't always happen here on earth. True biblical faith for the future is not just faith in the earthly outcomes that we want. It's faith and trust in a sovereign God, a loving Savior who is always there both in and out of the fire with us and for us. Faith is not confidence in our faith. Do we hear that? Faith is not confidence in our faith. Our faith is only as good as the object upon which it is placed in. Faith is confidence in our God, and that is how followers of Jesus 
face this life. That's how we face it. We know that God has a plan. We know if we're followers of Jesus, we're in that plan. We may not, doesn't mean we like what's going on, but it means we don't doubt that indeed he does have a plan. Now, can we pray for what we think is right? Of course we can. But yet at the same time, we trust that the Lord will do what is eternally right. Think about it. That, that's the kind of faith that says, Lord, I know that you're smarter than me. Lord, I know that you are wiser than me. Now you go, duh, Pastor Jim. Really? You don't ever think you're smarter than God? Am I the only one who thinks that? Why are some of you laughing now and smiling? We often think we know better than God. And then we're like, yeah, sorry about that, Lord. Sorry. This is real faith, not phony faith. But, but, but you see, we read the Bible and we think it's so easy for them. We picture them being like, oh, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, fiery furnace, bring it on, baby. Sounds like a great idea. No, nah, man, that's, that, I don't picture that. In fact, that's just weird. They just know, Nebuchadnezzar, you can, you can burn us up, but you can't take God from us. And you can't take us from him. No matter what you do to us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that, loved ones, will carry you through the deepest of waters. Remember, whatever difficulty that you are in, that nobody can take God from you, and nobody can take you from him. Now, you may, you may remind him of that. I'm constantly reminding God of his promises. For his sake? Not for his sake. For mine... That's part of a relationship, right? If you're married, you know this. Well, you said, <laughs> you said, don't forget. <laughs> and you know they didn't forget. You just, you know, especially like you're worried about something. You're like, I just, I just had to say it. I'm sorry. I just had to say it. It doesn't mean you won't be sad. It doesn't mean you won't grieve. It doesn't mean you won't be afraid. It doesn't mean you won't be anxious. It doesn't mean you won't be depressed. It doesn't mean you won't be confused. It doesn't mean you won't be heartbroken. It means you will never be alone. That's what it means. You will never have to go through any of that alone. So let's fast forward 600 years to that great chapter, chapter Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, the Hall of Faith. Picking up at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also David and Samuel and the prophets. So what's he doing? He's rehashing some of the great old, the saints of the Old Testament. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. You're like, now we're talking. Now we're talking. 
worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. There's our boy Daniel. We haven't gotten to that chapter yet. Quenched the violence of fire. Hey, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Woman received their dead. Raised to life again. That sounds great, doesn't it? You're like, that's the faith I'm signing up for, baby. But now look at others who made it to the hall of faith. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had the trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Let's just stop there for a second. Let's imagine that you're in heaven, and they tell you, uh, go in that room over there. And somebody makes a little mistake. You're like, there's no mistakes in heaven, we're just imagining and you end up in the room with that second group of people. And you're like walking in there and they're like, uh, so what happened to you? And you're like, they made me wear a mask. <laughs> what happened to you? Oh, they cut my head off. You're <laughs> like, I'm getting away from this guy. Woke up to somebody else. Tell me what else happened in your life that was so hard. They made me social distance. Me too. Really? Tell me what happened. They cut me in two and put me across the each side of the room. <laughs> the culture was so hard. It was so hard. They told me I had, to, I had to say it this way. What about you? Oh, yeah, they hunted me down, found me in a cave, and, and slain me. They killed me. Really? You're like, I'm not so sure I'm in the right room. And then you're like, oh, is that Peter, James, and John? I'm going to them for some comfort. My candidate didn't win for president. And they would be like, really? Our king died on a cross. And we abandoned him. You see, these people who underwent these horrible things, do you see any indication in the book of Hebrews that the problem is with their faith? You, you think, oh, poor them. Look at verse 38. Can we put that up there? Is that up there? Can we put that up there? We can't put that up there. Look at verse 38. They were destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Do we keep going? Of whom the world was not worthy. Can you believe that? That does not fit American Christianity, does it? 
God says some of these people had all the great stuff happen to them, and some of them literally got their head handed to them. They were tortured. Anything bad you could imagine happened to them. And we're going, oh, poor them. And God says, you know what? That dump called earth wasn't worthy of them. And we complain. And we complain. I can't believe what we've had to endure in this country. Is that faith? Is that really faith? I mean, we're going to meet those people. And then, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be very intimidated if there's such a thing in heaven. I'm going to be like, whoa. And see, they didn't give up following God when all that stuff happened. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us. Now, it's interesting. He's not really specific, the author of Hebrews, what is provided for us. Maybe to get our mind onto the key question, are we included in us? Are we part of us? I'm fine with the surprise of what we get. He said that they should not be made perfect apart from us. See, we're part of them and they're part of us. We're all part of God's family that serves the kingdom together. We're in it with them. Second Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is talking about all his troubles. Arrested, beaten, shipwrecked. And then at the end, he says, but most of all, you know what bothers me most of all? The burden I have for the churches. What? What? Is that, is that the way we, is that the importance we took, we put upon the church? You know, Historically, the church has meant a lot more than it has to contemporary Christian culture in America. And unfortunately, we're exporting it because it means a lot more in the rest of the world than it does. In the church, it's about me and my relationship about Jesus Christ. Oh, barf. <laughs> really? That is important. But it's about a people. Now, I'm the pastor of a church, have you noticed? And, and so I'm privy to a lot of problems in people's lives. But to me, the church is like that kid that you can never give up on. You know what that's like? Do you, you ever see a, a, somebody you just couldn't give up on? Because I see the potential of when God's people come together. Now, he had all those problems and God doesn't say to him, well, your problem is you didn't have enough faith. God doesn't say that. Then we move into chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations about all that God had been showing him and writing and the teaching. I mean, he was the man. Remember, we've said before that if you went to a, if you went to a secular university and you said, 
who is the other, you know, who is the most important person in the spread of Christianity to the world, most professors would tell you it actually wasn't Jesus Christ, it was the Apostle Paul, because that dude lit up the Roman Empire. Saul of Tarsus, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he's got something wrong with him. He says to the Lord, pleading with him, please take this thing from me. Some of you know exactly what that's like. I know I do. And he said to me, and if you have a red-letter Bible, most of these, they put, it in, put this in red, Jesus talking to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So, so he says to Paul, Paul, I know this is your reality. And I know this seems to make it harder for you. But basically, I'm going to accomplish two things with this thorn in the flesh. I'm going to help you know me more deeply through it. Because you're going to have to really trust and depend upon me to get through life. And then he's going to go on to say what else is going to happen. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, some versions say weaknesses, that the power of Christ rest upon me. That's the second thing. Paul, you're going to know me more deeply, but you're going to experience my power in a profound way, and people will look at you and say, that has to be God. No dude could do that. Nobody could do that. Verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because of the power of Christ. You see, all of these people were just regular people. They were just regular people. But they understood that faith does not remove the difficulties from life. In fact, now they know that a lot of the difficulties of their life were really opportunities. Why? Well, here for the Apostle Paul, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He understood, he came, was coming to the understanding that God's sustaining grace was what kept him going. That that built him up on the inside. That made him stronger. That made him so resilient to so many of the things in life. I mean, they stone the guy. They, they drag him out of town. They think he's dead. He gets up. He's like, oh, woo, woo. Let's go back into town. You can just imagine the guys with him like, what are you, nuts? And somebody else going, that's the power of Christ on that dude, man. Mm -hmm. You're going to run with him? You're going to run. You see, a number of you in our congregation watching us online are sick. You are. That does not necessarily mean you are faithless. 
In fact, often it means the exact opposite. It could very well mean so that the power of Christ rests upon you, which is something that others will see. See, a lot of times when you talk to people and they're like, I don't really want to hear what that guy has to say. But when they see you living under great trauma and difficulty and stress and heartache and and, and the ups and downs of life, when they see Christ upon you, it speaks volumes to them. I would imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed for deliverance. But I would imagine they also prayed for obedience. As we said at the beginning, as God promises his grace to situations that he puts us in or he allows us in. So you're in a situation right now, you say, God, I need your grace. I need your sustaining grace because right now there's nothing left of me. And God's going to be like, great, now we can get to work. Now we can get started. We may think we know what God's going to do next. But we really don't. And that's not the same as confidently asking him what he's going to do next. I've said this before. There's a lecture on the internet by a very famous pastor in New York City. Um, I was at the church at the beginning named Tim Keller. And, And Tim Keller said when he came to New York City in the late 80s, uh, he realized by talking to other pastors that he was in the, in the midst of a revival. Other pastors going, oh, we have these particular men, young men, like drugs, alcohol, just all kinds of stuff, just, just, just coming to Christ and everything is gone. I mean, they're just completely different people. You know, I don't know if God's going to do that again. But I was one of those guys. And I don't know what God's going to do, but I will not stop ever, ever stop praying that he will do it again. Because let me tell you, when you see that, It's amazing. A couple years ago, I saw one of the guys, he worked at, he works at the church where, one of the churches where it was happening, and, and I saw him, he used to be a collection man for the mafia. He owed money, he was the guy who came and saw you. And we just looked at each other, and we were like, man, those days. And so happy that each one of us are still following the Lord. Notice these three men did not assume or presume God would save them from the fiery furnace. I remember when coronavirus broke out, uh, people kept texting me this one verse that we should just not be afraid of anything, just keep doing what you're doing, uh, just keep going on church as normal, and um, they kept emailing me sermons. Uh, Have you heard, they're like, 
have you read Psalm 91? I'm like, dude, I taught through the entire book of Psalms verse by verse. Um, maybe I didn't understand it, but at least I read Psalm 91 when I did it. In fact, we did during when the pandemic broke out, we did a special message on Psalm 91 verse 3. Uh, Psalm 91, but 91.3 was the verse that everybody was sending to me, and it goes like this. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous, deadly pestilence. Now, that was a promise to a specific group of people. That's where you need to have a good hermeneutic, the art and science of biblical uh, interpretation. But, okay, thanks for the verse. I'll remember that. I'll keep that in my back pocket. And a lot of people were hanging on that. And a lot of people were hanging on that and caught the virus and didn't understand why they caught the virus. Now, I don't mean to be a snob, but I do mean to say we need to be very, very careful because no one, absolutely no one, emailed me the following verse following two verses, nor sent me any sermons on it because it would have been so unpopular to do a sermon on these verses. Numbers 14, 11, and through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, talking to, to, talking to, Lord's talking to, God, to Moses about his own people, how long will these people reject me? Is it possible that God could say the same thing to the church in America? I'm not saying he is, but is it possible? Some versions say, how long will they despise me? How long will they, another version says, how long will they treat me with contempt? And he says, and how long will they not believe me? Another version says, how long will they not believe in me with all or in spite of all the signs which I have performed among them? Now, if someone is born again, that is the greatest of all signs. Look at verse 12. No one texted me this verse. I will strike them with the pestilence. Wait a minute. Psalm 91 said he was, gonna, he was going to protect them from the pe pestilence. Now he's going to, and then earlier Moses said he was going to strike them. Different people, different time, different circumstances. I will strike them with the pestilence, some versions say plague, and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. I believe with all of my heart that with God all things are possible. I believe with all of my heart that greater things are coming. But the thought of one-third of the people who once sat among us, leaving the faith, absolutely breaks my heart. And I hope that it breaks yours too. I hope and pray not only for them, but for all the churches in our area and the churches of the United States of America, that people are not catching the pestilence and plague of unbelief. But by trusting God in the present, by doing the right thing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to trust God with the future. They said, we can't worship. That's, what, that's our faith in the present. We have faith of what happens if you throw us in that fiery furnace. 
by trusting God with reality. This is the reality they were facing. You're going to go into that furnace, man. That's the reality, not with what they imagined in their head. They became closer to the Lord and not more distant. Why? Because their faith was in God's greater purposes. And that's something that both comforts me and challenges me every single day of my life. I know that this, that each day God is teaching me that great faith is in him, not in what I want, not in what I think is best, or not in the way I think things should turn out. And I hope and pray that their simple faith in God gives you confidence that the Lord is looking for simple faith and trust because that will produce in you and in me. I want to be like these guys, man. I want to, when, when we get to Daniel, man, I want to be like, hey, go ahead, man. Throw me in the lion's den. Throw me in there, man. I'm so tough, they won't even be able to chew on me. I'll be like a teething toy to them. I want to be like those guys to have a tough and resilient faith. A faith that is always willing to get out of my seat and get off the sidelines and get in the game. A faith that is ready for the future. Not so incredibly pessimistic, but honors God who says, I will save my people from their sins. Many might say their faith in verse 17 was our God is able to deliver us, but I think their real faith is in verse 18 when they say, but if not. That is simple faith and trust in the goodness of God and the eternal promises made to those who turn to him and put their trust in him. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is your future. God has already rescued you from the fiery furnace of hell because of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you leave here today, don't leave here at least without this, getting in your car and saying, oh Lord, how good you have been to me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, to all who put their trust in Jesus, Turn to God. Let's just say, listen, God, man, I've been ignoring you. I get it. I know it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with the fiery furnace of frustration. I'm done with, with knowing I'm not following you. If you put your trust in Jesus, you don't only get the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus promised to send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of you so he will always be with you. And God will adopt you and you will go to heaven. You see, it's one thing to forgive someone, right? It's an entirely different thing to say, not only do I forgive you, but I want you to come live with me. And that's what God says to all who put their trust in him and his son. Speaking of the cross, the apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of these incredible words, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, there's your cross, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, these three men show us that even when things are not going well, we can rest in God's love and we can rest in God's goodness. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. They knew him as Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. And God the Father has shown his great love, his tremendous love and his goodness by giving us his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross in our place for our sins. The cross was horrific. But in God's great love, tragedy is turned to triumph as it changes the eternity of all who put their trust in the king who was crucified on the cross. That shows me that the Lord can take something in my life and in your life so horrible and turn it into good. He can take your faith today and turn it into faith for the future. And my prayer is motivated by grace all of us would get back to the Lord's business of taking the good news to the world because with God, all things are possible. Well, let's pray.